as we come to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us. Um, we need your help in everything, most especially in listening to you and hearing from you and obeying. And so we pray that you would overcome any resistance we have to your word. We pray that you would overcome any resistance we have to believing, any resistance we have to obeying. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would come and help us. Um, you've promised that when we uh, pray to you in a time of trouble that you would deliver us. And so we look for you to help us and deliver us even now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to 1 Timothy in chapter 3. 1 Timothy in chapter 3. I want to read verses uh, 8 through uh, 13. 8 through 13. We began uh, last Sunday with the first uh, seven verses about elders. This section is about deacons or servants. And so please hear the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, this section is about deacons. It appears that there's an office in the church, there's a place in the church that's known as uh, as the diaconate, as we would call it, or a place uh, for deacons. We know why Paul's talking about this. He's talking about this, remember, because he's writing to Timothy about how we ought to live together in the household of God, how we ought to conduct ourselves in God's family. And so he's, he's laying out all these things for Timothy. Here's how the church ought to be. Here's what it ought to look like. Here's how it ought to function. And so, so we read it with great interest because we're a church. And so we want to know how it is that God has laid out for us to, for us to do this that. Uh, Paul has said that the church is a pillar in support of truth and so he began, you remember, by saying you need to uphold the truth and deal with those who are teaching falsely but then he talks about the church gathering and how men are to come to pray. He talks about men and women in the context of worship. He talks about the importance of, of, of considering others especially women and how they dress and how they respond to what's going on in the context of the gathering and then he speaks to overseers to, to elders and he's saying there's should be those men who oversee the life and the ministry of the church. And now he comes to these folks called deacons. Now it's interesting, but unlike the passage concerning elders, it's interesting that deacons are only mentioned here and mentioned in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. The only two places in the Bible that we have at least translated this word deacon. The word deacon really is a transliteration from a Greek word, diakonos. Now, there's a number of words related to diakonos in the New Testament, a number of Greek words. And they're almost always translated as servant, service, or to serve. Only here, and in Philippians chapter 1, is that word diakonos and its related words translated as, as deacon. In some sense, there's a group of 
deacons. And, and it seems to make sense to transliterate it like that, to translate it like that, if you will, from diakonos to deacon as kind of an office because Paul's talked about elders and now he's talking about deacons. It seems like there's a group of them. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul addresses the elders and deacons, the overseers and deacons at Philippi. And so you get a sense there's a group of people recognized as deacons. And, and so Paul says in the life of the church, there are those who are deacons. Now, now, deacons, because of the meaning of the word, we get the sense that deacons serve, that that's what they do, that they're servants in the context of the life of the church. But what's important for us to see, I think, this morning, in addition to the fact, and we'll come to this, in addition to the fact that there's a group of people in the church who are deacons, who serve the church, who serve the body and, and help with all kinds of needs and all of that, that there's a sense in which, because of the nature of the word, that we're all to be servants. As a general use of this word diakonos in the scripture that speaks to all of us as those who serve. Now the original notion of the word is that those who serve are those who like wait on tables. In, in, in the Gospels, for instance, you might remember a woman by the name of Martha of Mary and Martha fame and Lazarus, right? Sisters Mary and Martha. You might remember that there was an occasion where Jesus was teaching and Mary was listening to the teaching, but Martha was busy as a deacon, if you will, diakonosing. And there she was, serving. And, and she was a little upset with her sister for not helping with the dishes or something. So there, so there was a problem. There. But, but basically waiting on the, the, the people there who were listening to Jesus teaching. And so that sense of serving in that particular way of, of waiting on Tables. In Acts chapter 6, while the word deacon isn't used per se, we had a situation in the, there was a situation in the life of the early church where um, uh, it seems that there were both uh, Greek and Hebrews uh, who were part of the church there by that time, which was a good thing. But the Greek women, widows, had a sense that they weren't being cared for as well as the Hebrew widows were being cared for. And the apostles who were teaching and who had previously been very much involved in the material needs of the community People would bring gifts to them, money to them, and they would distribute it. At that point in time, it seems like things had, this was a bigger issue. And the apostle says, oh, this is big. We don't have really time for this. It's important. And so we need to, to choose some men who can serve at the table and serve these widows and who are wise and so forth, can figure out the need and figure out the issue. And so these various ones, these men were chosen. And at least in our tradition, we have a tendency to look at them as, as early deacons, if you will. It wasn't spoken of like that, but they waited on table. They served in the context of of, of that particular need. But, but this word servant or diakonos, deacon, is used more broadly even. In Romans chapter 13, uh, Paul speaks of, of, of a soldier or a policeman as being a diakonos of God, being a servant of God, being one who is placed by God in a position to serve others. So this sort of generic sense of servant. In fact, Jesus uses this word uh, of all of us, and he says, if you want to be my servant... And, and of course, the implication there is we do want to be his servant. We want to be his diakonos. And so there's a sense in which all of us are servants for the sake of Christ. We're diakonoses, if you will, for the sake of Christ. And so we all have that. In fact, Paul referred to himself even as one who was a deacon, one who served. He didn't serve exactly as a deacon. He served as an apostle, but still he understood himself as one who was a servant. And he speaks of this. It's often translated as ministry. 
a, a minister is a diakonos who serves, serves in a particular way. For Paul, it was serving as an apostle. For Timothy, who's also called a diakonos, uh, it, it's, it's one who serves as an evangelist or as a, as a teacher, you see. Um, in, in certain countries, speak of, uh, of the, their servants as ministers. The minister defends, for instance, right? He is, he's, he's one who is to be a servant in the area of defense. I remember one time years ago when my children were little, we were walking around Crown Center, and there, there was a, a display of autographs and pictures of famous people. And there was a display of, of, uh, of, of Winston Churchill. And there was a piece of paper with his name on it, and it was selling for $3,000. And my daughter Sarah, who is now an accountant, looked at that and said, Wow, Dad, he's a minister. You're a minister. And my son, who's more the negotiator in the family, he looked at it and said, but dad, it says he was the prime minister. That's why it was worth that one. But a minister is a servant. And so, so, so that's the sense that we're all to be servants, you see. Um, Jesus himself called himself a diaconos when he said, I've not come to be served but to diakonos, but to serve. And we know the way that he served us. He served us in this way of giving himself for us. He did exactly for us that which we needed. And so, you see, this whole notion of serving is germane to who we are as believers in Christ. Now, God has given to us some servants who will sort of have that position, if you will, in the church. But he gives them to us not to do all the serving, but to be examples of servants for us, to show us how to do this, to lead us in this life of serving one another. We're all to be in ministry. We're all to minister to all to serve and so this sense of all of us you see being a diaconos because that's germane to us as who we are as followers of Christ because he serves we serves we serve one of the most astounding things for us to learn about God and I say this reverently that he serves us there's a sense in which We don't serve him in the sense that he needs anything. It's not like we're doing something because God needs us to do this because he he really can't do this for himself. We don't serve him because he needs anything. Our service of him is derivative. I mean, we get from him so that we can obey him. So that we can follow him. And even in our obedience of him, that's his gift to us. Because that's precisely what we need. We need to obey. We need to follow. Because that's what it means to have life. To follow after him. So even when we say we serve him, it means we obey him. And we only obey him because he's first given to us so that we can. And so all of our obedience and all of our serving glorifies him. Reflects him. And you see, that's the very point. We've been made in the image of God. And He loves. He serves. This sense of Trinity, that God is three in one, stretches our minds. We do everything that we possibly can to get get our minds wrapped around it, and then we still can't. What does it really mean that God is one God, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We don't believe that he's, He's three 
gods who work in harmony with one another. We don't believe that he's unipersonal, if you will, just one person, meaning that sometimes he manifests himself as Father, sometimes he manifests himself as Son, sometimes he manifests himself as Holy Spirit. Oh, the way that he's revealed to us in Scripture, there's he's one God, one, but yet exists in three persons, meaning that each person together, each person all together, God, yes, each individually, all the attributes of God, and, and, and yet separate to the degree that The Father refers to the Son as you and himself as me. And different in that sense. So while it's hard for us, perhaps impossible, for us to get our minds around that, the implication, the meaning is clear. That God therefore is and can be love from all eternity. Because in himself, he loves. If he was just one person before we were created, who would he love? But he's three in one. Thus we find himself, we find him loving throughout all of eternity. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And we read that the Father glorifies the Son by sending him. And he says, here is my Son, look at him. And the Son glorifies the Father, honors the Father, loves the Father, serves the Father by saying, look at how gracious my Father is for sending me for the sins of sinners. And the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son by saying, look at Him, look at what He's done, look at how great He is. And so you see within the Trinity is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving. And thus when we are created, we're not created just one. God said it's not good for man to be alone. That didn't mean he needed somebody to do his laundry, right? It meant that if he's to love, he needs another to love. And so when Eve is created, what does he do? He puts them together in this intimate marriage relationship of love, the two becoming one flesh. And we're to image him like that. What does it mean to image God? Well, we can make a long list, but the guts of it is that we're to love as he loves And thus, as those who love, we're to serve as he serves. You see, love is others interested. Love isn't self-centered. Jesus gave two commands which summarized the commandments. One was, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, he said, was like it in the sense that it was love, that we were to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, the command there wasn't that we are to love ourselves. There are only two commands, to love God and to love our neighbor. The as ourselves part was kind of the da part of it. God was saying, listen, you're human beings. Thus, you're self-aware. You're self-conscious. You look after your own well-being. You just you do that. You're human beings. And so as you do that for yourself, do it for others as well. That is, be conscious of other people. Be aware of them and their needs. And look out for their well-being. In a similar way, he would give us this rule, Jesus would, to do to others as we would have them do to us. Now, of course, that isn't some absolute um, standard of morality. My sense of justice isn't the sense of justice. But we get what Jesus means. You're human beings. You get what it means to be human beings. Don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you. Come on. It's not that hard. We're to love one another. We're to serve one another. And thus, 
when we see someone need, we go to them. Remember that lawyer that came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the law say? And he said, well, I'm to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus said, that's right, do that and live. And so the man seeking, the scripture says, to justify himself. And we don't know if that was, he, he was trying to make himself look good or if he was just trying to discern, have I done it? So we don't know the attitude necessarily behind that. But, but, but he asked Jesus that question, who is my neighbor? Now, I think, at least if I were asking the question, I would want him to give me a short list. Either give me the list of people who were my neighbor or give me the list of people who weren't my neighbor. And whichever was shorter, you know? But, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus tells a story that blows all this man's and our gaskets because he really doesn't answer the question. He really doesn't give us a list about who our neighbor is or isn't. He says, well, there's a story. Remember, there's this man who was on the Jericho Road and he was beaten. And I think going through the mind of that lawyer and the mind of the people there was, well, he deserved to be beaten. Why would anybody go on the Jericho Road? It was known for people getting beaten and robbed. And so you begin to think, I don't even like this guy. But he was beaten. And, and then Jesus said, well, there was two religious leader, pr- leaders, a priest and a Levite who come by. And they see this man all beaten up. And they go past the other side. And the guy goes, well, what do you expect? But then he says, a Samaritan happened by. Now, at that point in time, that man who was a Jewish lawyer would think a Samaritan. I hate that guy. Already Jesus has him, doesn't he? Because he says, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And you get the sense that already this Jewish lawyer, because Jews hated Samaritans, would be thinking, I don't like this guy. Jesus already has him. But Jesus goes on and he says, well, the Samaritan now does exactly what you would expect someone who loves their neighbor to do. And that is he helps him. And so you sort of resign to the fact that Jesus is going to say your neighbor is anybody in need. He doesn't say that. He said, who was the neighbor? Who loved? That's the point. It isn't that we're making lists about people we should or shouldn't love. The question is about our own hearts. Are we loving people? Why? Because we're created in the image of God. And we're to love like that. We're to love as God has loved Now we know that sin has distorted the image of God in us, making us reluctant to love, reluctant to serve. And sadly for us, even when we do love and even we do serve, we know it's not always for the right reasons. Very often it's because of us, not them. We love so we don't feel guilty. We love because we can't say no. We, we serve uh, because we think by serving uh, we'll show that we're really not as bad as other people might think we are. Or we, we serve so that perhaps God will answer our prayers in some particular way. We kind of, you know, build up some points with them or, or points with others. You know, we're either paying it back or paying it forward as the movie says, whatever that means. And so there we are, serving often for the wrong reasons. In fact, studies have shown that people who serve others are happier than people who don't. I hear that and I say, oh good, then I better go serve people so I can be happier. How less selfish is that? It's still for me. It's still for my own happiness. And now Jesus said, no, no, no. If you're in my image, then you'll serve your love because God is the one who serves It's fantastic that God serves. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 64, we uh, read this of of God. He He says this, verse 1, 
no prophet. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Uh, When you did awesome things that we didn't look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. So he says, God, I want you to to come, because when you come, it's amazing. Verse 4, from of old, no one is heard or perceived by the ear. No, I have seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, listen, God, you act, you work on behalf of those who pause, who wait, who look for, who depend upon, who rest in you, you serve. That concept is so utterly foreign to any other notion of God. All other notions of God. We must do so that God will. We must do so that God will. Here's a God who acts on our behalf, and of course he does. In Psalm chapter 50, uh, we read this of, of God. It's in the context of, of prayer. Chapter 50, verse 7. Psalmist writes, Hear, O my people, and I'll speak, O Israel. I'll testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God is saying, listen, I know I've instituted this whole system of sacrifice. But if you think it's because I'm hungry, you've missed the point. If you think because I need all these dead animals, you've missed the point. This isn't for me, it's for you. I've instituted this for you. So that you can be in my presence. And this illustrates what is to come in Jesus when I serve you. So that you can be in my presence and live in my presence. I'm asking you to do this, God says, because I have a need for any of this. Trust me, if I needed something, you'd be the last people I'd ask. I'm pretty good at meeting my own needs. I'm pretty good at satisfying myself. I'm God. See, this is the very point. In fact, that was Isaiah's very point. He, he spoke of these, these, these false gods, these idols. And he says, how silly is it for you to build an idol out of silver and, and wood and stone? You to make your own God. How silly is it for you then to have to carry it around? What God is worthy of being God who can't get around on his own? You have to speak for him. What God is worthy of being God who can't speak for him? You have to hear for him. He's deaf. How silly is this? And then we think, how silly are we? who create gods all the time that we serve, that we think will satisfy, and they really don't. God said, no, 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 no. I'm God. You need me. I serve you. Now in my image, serve one another. Be like me. The end of this passage pulls it all together in Psalm chapter 50, verse 14. Psalmist writes, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me, that is, call upon God. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. He says, listen, here's your need, so call upon me. You're the needy one. Call upon me, and I'll deliver you. I'll do it for you. I'll I'll deliver you. And he said, and you will glorify me. Now, that doesn't mean, as once I've delivered you, now your task is to glorify me. 
God is saying, in my deliverance of you, you'll see my glory. Right? You'll see my glory. We see this glory most perfectly in our Lord Jesus. We see him, of course, as he comes on that night that he was betrayed. He was with his disciples, you remember. And you remember what he did. He, he washed their feet. No one washed his feet. Yet he was the Lord of all. But he humbled himself. And he served them. And he said, this is just a glimpse of what is to come. And of course, what came was the ultimate serving, the ultimate love on the cross, where he himself took our sin upon himself, that we might live. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He loved us. He served us. That's what he did. And there's a parable that Jesus tells, again, that for me at least, it it rather knocks off my socks. I, I didn't expect it to, to work out this way, this particular parable that, that he tells. He speaks of, of his coming. And he speaks of his coming in such a way that he says, listen, when the Son of Man comes, when the Master comes, when the Son of Man comes, uh, he will serve you at this table. So he says, of course, uh, be ready. But it's the master of the house who will do the serving. That's what Jesus says. And so here we are. We're to, we're to be those who serve as, as he does. Now he gives us, God does these models of service, these servants, these deacons. And we learn a great deal from them. We learn uh, what, the, what, what the real... Um, Maturity markers are for one who serves well. If we want to serve well, we want to be like these deacons. Um, It isn't that these deacons are sort of less worthy than elders. In fact, as we look through this list of uh, attributes of deacons, uh, we find there's only really two things different here than the list for elders. Neither one of them has anything to do with spiritual maturity. The, the first is in verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because here, uh, Paul does something he doesn't do with elders. He speaks of, 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 of their wives. Notice, he says, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And what makes that sentence a bit difficult for us is that the word wives is the same word for women. Now, it's translated very often wives because of the next sentence. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children well. So, verse 12, all right, we're speaking of the deacon's family. Therefore, verse 11, we can translate that word as it's often translated as wives because it's a family kind of thing. And so, perhaps Paul is saying to Timothy, now, if you have deacons who serve in the life of the church, make sure their wives, in a sense, are able to serve with them, that the wives are dignified, they're not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things things, which is a good summary of all these other things that are to be true of of deacons themselves. It it could be that um, these are women 
who serve along with deacons. So we find in chapter 5, as Paul writes about widows, he writes about them in such a way that the ones who have been serving the church are ones worthy of help, if you will. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, uh, there's a woman named Phoebe who's called a servant or a diaconos of the church. And so some would say, well, there are women who come alongside these deacons, There are wives who come alongside these deacons, and perhaps there are even women who hold this office of deacon. Um, I point that out only to say that's not a debate I get involved in. And so there you go. I don't don't know how to to parse all those out. We have women deacons in our church, but, but because it's ambiguous there, it seems, at least to me. To us, So that's the first thing different. The second thing different in this list of, of deacons, what it really means to serve and to serve well, is that, that deacons, while they need to be orthodox in faith, they don't, as is necessary for elders, they don't need to be able to teach. And so that's a, a big distinction between elders and deacons. The, the, the elder overseer role needs to be people who are not only well-versed in the scripture, well-versed in theology, but also able to teach it. And deacons, it seems, need not be able to teach in that same sense. So those two differences. But, but that's it. The, the moral uh, qualities, characteristics are, are essentially the same. And thus, it isn't that deacons are less worthy elders or less spiritual elders or less mature elders. That's not it at all. It isn't that deacons are elders in training. It isn't, well, the person's not ready to be an elder yet, so let's make that person a deacon. No, 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 it's, it's not that. It could be that elders become deacons. It could be that, uh, well, I'm sorry, that deacons become elders. It could be that elders become deacons over the course of their life. But, 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 but here, it isn't anything related to deacons being in any way, shape, or form less spiritual, if you will, than elders. But it's simply an office of service. And if we want to learn how to serve well, we have this sense then of, of from this list of what it takes. Notice, Paul writes, deacons must be dignified, that is respectable, trustworthy. If you're going to serve another person, and we're all called to serve each other, we need to be trustworthy. People need to trust us. Before I can let you into my life, before I can let you help me, Unless I'm just desperate and will take it from anybody. Which is where I am often, by the way. You need to be trustworthy. If you're a trustworthy person, you're more likely to be in a position to be allowed by someone to help them. And that's what we're to be. And so if you want to be a servant of Christ, you must be one who is trustworthy. He is eminently trustworthy, right? Eminently trustworthy. We trust him. So we can commend him to others. When I meet people who don't know Christ, they say, trust him. He's trustworthy. I can commend you. When someone needs help from another person, I have, I have people, I have lists of people that I can say, you can trust this person, you can trust this person, you can trust this person, you can trust this person. I can go down a long list of people and say, here, call them, or I'll call them for you. They'll help you. And you can trust them. Trustworthy people are better servants then people aren't trustworthy, obviously, because we're entering into people's lives when they have particular needs. Not double-tongued, that is. Not, you know, people who, who, whose yes is yes and no is no. If you want to be a good servant and you say you're going to help somebody, you better. If you make too many promises and you don't make good on them, then, then no one's going to trust you to help them anymore. So if you want to be a servant of Christ, then you need to be one whose who, who's, who's word is true. Right? Because Christ's word is true. When he says he's going to help us, he helps us. 
And he says, not addicted to much wine. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Not greedy for dishonest gain. When you come into a person's life who needs help and, and you're known to be one who's greedy or looking out for yourself, the person would say, why are you really helping me? Are you helping me for your own interest? Are you helping me for your own gain? Are you helping me to help me? Can I really trust you in that? And so you need to be someone who's not greedy for dishonest gain, not helping for your own gain. It says verse 9, they must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. That is, even though this person doesn't need to be able to teach in the same way that an elder may teach. Some deacons can teach in the same way that elders can teach. But it's not a requirement for, for serving another. You don't have to be able to teach in the way that an elder can teach. But still, you need to hold the truth rightly. Why? Well, first of all, because you need to know why you're helping. And that comes from the knowledge of the truth. And the second is, there are all kinds of opportunities that happen when you're serving someone to tell them about Jesus and to walk them through the truth of the gospel and the truth of faith and the truth of life. And so you need to know your stuff. In fact, by helping someone, you're actually illustrating words that we use all the time. You're illustrating by your helping the word mercy, the word compassion, the word grace, the word love, the word serving, the word forgiveness. All those words take on flesh and blood in the midst of helping. And so you need to understand those words so you apply them rightly, maybe not in what you say, but certainly in your actions. And then, of course, in the midst of serving someone in need, there's all kinds of opportunities to, to share with them in ways that, that I never get to. And when you're out there in the midst of a situation, that's when you can say things, bring truth that rings deeply. So just because you're a servant, you don't need to say, well, you know, sorry, I can't talk about that because I'm not an elder. (laughs) No, you're right there in the midst of it. It's not teaching in the same way that an elder would teach in a class or something like that, but it's here in the midst of life. And then verse 12, he says, Let each uh, be the husband of one wife, managing their children, their own households well. That is to say, you can learn in the midst of, of, of family life what it means to serve. So learn it well and show that by way of your family that, yes, I serve and I can be trusted. And then verse 13, two amazing promises for servants. This goes for deacons, but it goes for us all. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And he says, Listen, if you serve well, you'll gain a, a good standing for yourself. And That isn't why you serve, oh, so I can get this good standing. But he said, Listen, over the course of time, if you're known as a servant, if you're known as a doer, not just a talker, but a doer of the word, a day will come when you'll realize that you're respected by the people. It'll come as a surprise to you, because that's not why you're doing it. But if you go, oh. Remember Jesus, he said, if you're giving your gifts, do it in secret. Because your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. In other words, none of our work goes without God noticing, without God seeing, and without Him being pleased. Do you remember the parable of the talents? There are various gifts given to three different people. Each were to 
use them in such a way that would be pleasing to the master. The first two did, the last one didn't. But you remember the response of the master of Jesus, really, to the first two who did well with what they were given. They served well, if you will. They used it in a good way. He blessed them, but the last expression was this. Now enter in to the master's joy. Servants who serve well, in a way that servants who don't serve well get to know the joy of God. I have no words to describe that, except it sounds better than anything else I could ever know. To enter into the very happiness, the very joy of God. And then he says, you'll also get great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, your assurance that you belong to Christ, your assurance that Christ is really real, will increase as you serve. That is to say, you'll get to know him better. Uh, John chapter 14 and verse 21. Jesus is with his disciples. It's the night that he's betrayed and all of that right before his, his crucifixion. And he speaks to his disciples, Jesus does, and he says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In this context, the commandment of Jesus is that we're to love one another as he has loved us. Context of loving, context of serving. He says, listen, if you love like that, if you keep my commandments, he says, you're the one that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And Jesus says, I will manifest myself to him. Meaning, in the midst of your loving, in the midst of your serving, I'll show you myself. Now, how does he do that? He does that in the sense, I think, that we understand increasingly what it means to be like him. To really serve. So sometimes we'll be rejected, and we'll go, oh, I know Jesus better. Sometimes we'll be received and we'll say, oh, I know Jesus better. Sometimes we'll need to forgive. Oh, I knew Jesus. I know Jesus better. Sometimes we'll find ourselves at the very end of our rope, unable, un- just we simply don't know how to help. We feel like I can't help. And Jesus will show up in a way that we'll see him like we've never seen him before. And we go, oh, wow, that's Jesus. So he says, trust me on this. Serve well. You'll know me better, be more assured of who you are in me, more assured that I really am the Christ as you serve. Now, how do we get there? How do we get past our self-centeredness and really serve? Well, I wish there was somebody else preaching this morning. Who knew it better than I. So let me point you to one who who does. There's one characteristic of Jesus that I think is helpful to us here. And, and, and characteristic by that I mean it's, it's self-descriptive. This is something that Jesus speaks of concerning himself. In Matthew chapter 11, you know these verses. Verse 28 and 29 uh, and 30. Jesus describes himself. He says, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. That little expression of Jesus, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, could be translated also and is in some versions, I'm meek and humble. And that's the self-description of Jesus that I think must be true of us in order for us to be servants as he serves. Meekness and humility. We see that played out as Paul describes Jesus in Philippians and chapter 2. Philippians and chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from my love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So here's the one mind that we're supposed to have. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, that is, we're to be humble, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be aware of them. Be conscious of them. Know their need and think of their need as significant. He puts it here even more significant than our own. And he says that's humility. Humility voluntarily, if you will, placing yourself under the need of another. Right? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you say, well, on what basis am I to do that? Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying this is the same mind of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he says, listen, look at Jesus. He was God. And while he could have grabbed hold of being God and demanding glory and judging everyone in the moment they saw him, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped at that moment. That is to say, he took on human form. So he veiled, if you will, this complete deity. He was God, but he didn't grasp it. So you might be the president of the company. You might be the smartest one. You might be the richest one. You might be the most able one. And he said, well, don't grasp upon all of that. Humble yourself. Put yourself under the need of another, is what Jesus did. And he did it to such a degree that he went all the way to death. Now, for us, death, we think, oh, he died. It was more than that. The humility of Jesus was to be despised by his own father, was to be um, forsaken by his own father. It was that, when he talks about being obedient to the point of death, he says, I went under everything. There wasn't anything above me. (laughs) Or everything was above me. There wasn't anything under me. I was condemned for your sake and I'm God if anybody had the right not to have that happen to him it was me he would say but, 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 but I'm God so, so there isn't anything that I wasn't willing to take on even as God for you so he says don't grasp a hold of who you think you are put yourself under that need now how do we do that I think this way we come to realize who we really are you see, we have a tendency to compare ourselves with one another. When we do that, quite frankly, I look pretty good most of the time. Because I don't compare myself with people who are better than me, by the way. It's just, you know, I don't do that. Uh, 
And so I look pretty good with the people that I'm comparing myself to. I have a whole list of people that want a bad day. I go, well, I'm better than that person. Ha! Right? We do that all the time. But, but Jesus said, don't do that. Compare yourself to me. That's humbling. That's reality. Do you realize in glory we're still going to be humble? Because in glory we're still going to be human. And we're going to be amazed at this one who isn't only human, but who is God also. In glory, I still won't be able to make a planet. Right? And Jesus will say, watch this. (laughs) Or whatever. You get my point. I'm still humbled there. Even though I'm not sinning, I'm humbled there because he's still greater than I. This is simply who I am. And that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, I think I quoted earlier, where Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? And then he goes on to say, well, then why do you act like you haven't received it? In other words, why are you acting so proud when you don't have anything that hasn't been given to you by God? In fact, the whole argument of 1 Corinthians is Paul saying, look at the cross. Doesn't that humble you? You needed that. The best you can do on your own was to merit hell. And you would have that had another not come and taken your place. Another that you didn't ask to do that, that you didn't want to do that. He just did that for you. And now he's come and revealed that to you in such a way that you could receive it. And so, so what do you have that you haven't been given? So how can you be so proud? How can you look at the need of another and go, oh, that's below me? Right? Jesus didn't do that. And so we think of ourselves rightly in the presence of God. That's why Jesus would say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, when you get it, when you understand your own spiritual bankruptcy, and he said, ah, you're in the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Those are the people who see their spiritual bankruptcy and know their sin. And so they mourn before God. He said, then I'll comfort you. So already we've given nothing, and we've gotten the kingdom of heaven and comfort. (laughs) And then he said, blessed are the meek. A meek person is one who understands who they are before God and lives that out in front of human beings. And they say, no one, nothing is below me because I know my sin and I know what I deserve because I'm poor in spirit. I'm worn over it. And he says, then I live meekly, not proudly, meekly. And then he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. That is to say, once you realize your need, then you go to God for righteousness. And that righteousness doesn't fill you with pride, but the next one is blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So you've received mercy. The righteousness you have, you realize, has been given to me as a gift. So how can I, who've received mercy, not be merciful to others? And on and on. See, the way that this works for us is that we see ourselves in the presence of God as, we, as who we really are. We make confession of our sin. And we repent and we ask God to change us and to help us. And then we see the needs of others and we say, God, enable me, help me to help them, to step out. And there are times when we're going to be doing it for the wrong reasons, confess it. There are times when we might have a glimmer of the right reason in doing it, and we should rejoice and give him thanks, and now wear a humble button, right? Then that's not good. But we live for him, you see, by living from all that he's given to us. And rejoice in the fact that he's creating, recreating us in his image. Let's pray, Father in heaven. Pray for me, for us, that we'd get it, that we'd understand how we're to live, that we're to serve you like this. 
by serving others. That you are making us, conforming us into the image of our Lord Jesus. And He loves and serves. So may that be the very quest of our lives. To serve. Help us to see who we really are. Enable us to see the needs of others. Cause us to care. And cause us to serve. Father, we think on this day of families in our church, no doubt, grieving. Uh, Delbert Earhart's family grieving today. All of us missing him. <clears throat> but we thank you for his life of 95 years. And we pray that his memory will live on in such a way that we'll be drawn closer to you. We pray for the Padden family, Father, also knowing of the loss of their 92-year-old husband and father, grandfather, great-grandfather. So, Father, we pray for the Padden family and the Hex that uh, you would be with them as they grieve. We thank you for his life, for Fred's life, and his godliness. Father, we think, too, of those in particular need. There's all kinds of needs, I'm sure, many of which we do not know. We pray... Uh, for little Jillian Werner and thank you for her life and pray for her continued healing, Father, that even in her young age she may have occasion to cast her cares upon you and for her mom and dad that they would as well. Father, for all of us that you would be with us, that you would help us. You would cause us to love one another as Christ has loved, to serve one another as he served us, that we might know the great joy of our Master. And that we might know for sure that we belong to him. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. And please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace We brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And together, let us sing.